I would invite you to turn in your copies of God's Word, all of the words will be on the screen, to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. Today we're just going to read and look at the first four verses, although there will be times like two weeks ago when we began in Titus where we might just look at a word or two. Last uh, time in Titus, we just considered two words. Today we're just going to try to round out these first four verses, and I'm just going to read these to you, um, and we'll come back and make a couple of comments. Says this in Titus 1 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised uh, before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Let's pray together. Lord, as we approach your word, we know that we can never have an encounter with your word and be unchanged. We are always changed. We are either changed for the better because we respond in turning away from ourselves and to you, or we respond for the worse. We're changed for the worse because we harden our hearts and we, we close ourselves off to what your word says. Lord, I pray that we would do the first. I pray that we would look to your word and see beautiful things in it and that your Holy Spirit would come and fill this place in the next few moments so that we could be changed for the better because of what you have inspired in the Bible today. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. In 1974, uh, there was a man named Peter Drucker. And I've got a picture of him. He was a management consultant that began uh, going around and talking with large corporations about how they can improve. And his big thing was teaching corporations about how they can uh, create a mission statement. This idea really caught on about 10 years later in the 80s, and so every company uh, began adopting a mission statement. Uh, many books were written on the idea of a mission statement. I'm curious if you've ever thought about some of the companies that you buy from, uh, if you've ever read what their mission statements are. Some of them are very good and clear, and others of them are just a little kind of squishy and hard to understand. I've got a few of those that I've pulled out. Walmart says that they exist to save people money so they can live better, and I think their commercials say, save money, live better, or something like that. So it seems like a kind of a, a clear thing. The American Red Cross is super specific, right? They, they laid it all out in their mission statement. To prevent and alleviate human suffering in the face of emergencies by mobilizing the power of volunteers and the generosity of donors. So they have like their whole plan there in their mission statement. They, they went pretty hardcore. Uh, Sony says something a little more squishy. 
to be a company, uh, which, you know, I guess if they had stopped right there, they would have succeeded. To be a company <laughs> that inspires and fulfills your curiosity. You know, so there's that. I, I just wanted a DVD player. I didn't want, you know. <laughs> Coca-Cola went all religious on us and said that they want to refresh the world in mind, body, and spirit. Um, so, you know, there's that. Nothing in there about diabetes or anything there. So they want to refresh the world in mind, body, and spirit. Uh, the, the mission statement, purpose statement movement uh, was so strong and so influential in the business world that many in pragmatic evangelicalism began to adopt this strategy. They began to borrow this idea of adopting a mission statement or a purpose statement. And they, and they baptized this idea and, and began to use it in the church. Maybe the most prominent example of this would be in 1995, Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Church. Churches began to be encouraged to have a, a purpose statement or a mission statement. What you were supposed to do is, and I was actually trained in this way at one point, to, you're supposed to bring a, a group of people together and, uh, you know, uh, people who were, you know, prominent in different areas of your church, bring them together, put them in a room and, and, and let them talk. And, and as a group, they come up with what the church's mission statement should be. And if it's different from the churches down the road, then that's probably a good thing because what we're trying to do is not form ourselves around the things that the Scripture says necessarily. We're trying to mark ourselves out from the competition. There's this very kind of corporate understanding of, of what it is that we're trying to do. Now, folks, there's, there's nothing necessarily wrong or unbiblical about all of this, and, uh, but I will say that perhaps for a number of years, the church began, became more attracted toward how it could mark itself off and carve out a market share and win those Christians from over there and maybe get those Christians from that church to come to, to our church, we became more concerned about the church's mission statement than we were about the church covenant. We were more attracted to how to win against the competition than how to be faithful to what the Bible says. So today, though, when we open Paul's letter to Titus, we see that Titus does have a mission statement. And the mission statement that Paul gives to Titus is the mission statement I believe that we should adopt for our church. I'm going to, Lee's going to put something up on the screen here in just a, a second. This is how I summarize the book of Titus, and this is, as the young kids say, this is my jam, okay? This is what I believe that we should be about. God blesses churches that do hard but biblical things. God blesses churches that do hard but biblical things. See, here's what I think my fear is as church leader. I'm just trying to be transparent and open before you. My fear, and maybe if I could take a liberty, maybe your fear too, is that the more serious we get about the Bible, the less attractive we may seem to the world outside. But my conviction is this, is that when churches are faithful to do hard but biblical things, God sees that and He blesses it. <laughs> 
When churches are faithful to do hard but biblical things, God wants those churches to thrive. And as a result, he opens up the floodgates of blessing on them. And so, and so what we see in Titus is, is a mission statement, is a blueprint for New Testament churches everywhere. We don't have to pull a committee together to figure out what we're supposed to be about. God has given it to us in the Bible. The question is, do we want to follow it? And so my call for us today, and this will be uh, a, a consistent refrain and a consistent theme because I think it summarizes Titus. God blesses churches that do hard but biblical things. So what specifically did Paul say that his letter to Titus was for? What is this letter for? What was the purpose statement? What was the mission statement? Well, we see in the first verse that it was for the faith of God's elect. Paul says this, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for, that is a purpose statement, for, for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge in the truth, which accords with godliness. And then we get a second one in, in, in verse 2. In the hope of eternal life. There's another purpose statement, which God, who never lies, promised long before the ages began. But this first one is the one that we're going to take a look at. Is that Paul says that he's writing to Titus for a purpose, and that purpose is for the faith of God's elect. Can I just be really honest here? This word, elect, makes a lot of us feel very uncomfortable. It makes me feel uncomfortable a little bit. Elect literally means those who have been chosen. Uh, it comes from the Greek word eklektos. It occurs in the New Testament 22 times, so this is nothing obscure. This is nothing behind the scenes. It's a very prominent theme in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The, the New American Standard Bible, which is a very literal wooden translation, uh, translation it says uh, that the Greek word here means those chosen of God. Paul uses the word again in Romans 8.33 and in Colossians 3.12 to mean those whom God has chosen. I think the reason that, that we get uncomfortable when we see this verse is because we're much more at home in talking about how we choose God, and we're not very at home talking about how God has chosen us. But can I put something to you? If something is in the Bible, it is here to encourage us. If something is in the Bible that makes us feel uncomfortable, it's not the Bible that needs to change. Amen? If something is in the Bible, it is not meant to sow confusion, and it's certainly not meant to sow conflict or argument. If it's in the Bible, it's meant to build us up and to cause us to, to grow up and to be mature in the faith. So every word in the Scriptures we are supposed to embrace. So I've got three options in dealing with this elect, those chosen of God. I could either ignore it, which I, you know, you guys know me, I preach verse at a time through the Bible. That's not an option. Not on the table. I can't ignore it. I could say, second option would be, I could be like, I know that's what the Bible says, but that's not what the Bible means. Not going to do that. Not going to do number two. 
That leaves us with only option number three. I could try to explain it in a way that edifies the church and makes sense of the rest of the Bible. So that's what we're going to go with. Is that good enough for, for you folks? Okay, head nods, participation, that's good. All right, so here's what I want to do. I want to lay out the beauty of what it means to be chosen of God and make sense of it in the rest of the Scriptures. Uh, it should not surprise us that this shows up in the New Testament. The, it should not surprise us that the Bible speaks this way. God has been talking about His people being a chosen people for a long time. Deuteronomy 7 we see Israel, who were the chosen people of God. So the question is not, were they chosen or not? The question was, on what basis were they chosen? On what basis does God make this choice? In Deuteronomy 7, it says this, For you are a chosen people, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And here comes the money shot, verse 7, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and has redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. So how does God choose? How did he choose his people Israel? Based on his grace based on his kindness, based on his love, because he is good. And the one thing that God wanted to impress upon the people of Israel is it was not based on their good works or on their track record. So what can we learn today? Just like the Old Testament people of God, if we find that we are among the people of God, it's not because we did anything good. It's because God is kind. God did not look down through the long tunnel of the future to find that you were a good guy or a good gal and that he wanted you on his team. He sought you when you were a stranger. He sought me when I was a stranger wandering from the fold of God. And that is the reason that we are here. It's all because of his grace, all because of his mercy. But here's the other side of this truth. Look what it says here. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Even in this verse, there is an evangelistic undercurrent running out beneath the surface. What we see here is that the purpose that Paul was writing to Titus is so that God's people could have faith and could come to believe. Paul has a long track record of desiring to bring the fullness of, of, of people into God's fold. Remember what he said in 2 Timothy 2. He says this, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. You see what Paul is saying here? 
He's saying, this is the reason that I am in prison. This is the reason that I'm willing to be beaten. This is the reason that I'm willing to be left for dead almost because I was beaten so severely. Evangelism is embedded in even in this idea of God having a chosen people. You see, what, what, we, what we want to try to figure out in our minds is if God talks about having an elect or a chosen people, then I guess that means we ought not to do anything. Friends, that is unbiblical. The reality is the only reason anyone comes to know Jesus is because they hear the gospel and someone tells them. And so as a result, we must be sharing the gospel with anyone and everyone that we come into contact with. That's what Paul seems to understand. He says, I'm even willing to suffer for it. Romans 10, 13 says this, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe on him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And so what we see here is that yes, God is sovereign. God is in control, but man is also responsible to respond. And so we would do well to follow the advice of whoever it was that first said, don't make enemies out of doctrines that God calls friends. Yes, God is in control, but we are also responsible to share the gospel, and people are responsible to respond to the gospel. Paul is saying, I'm writing so that people may hear and believe and come uh, to be a part of God's people. We take our cue from this as well. The reason God has put us here in Trenton, Kentucky, is the same reason that God put Paul on the island of Crete to share the gospel message so that people could be gathered into the people of God. Our mission is outward focused. What does this mean that our job is? Well, I've already touched on it. Our job is to share the gospel with anyone and everyone. Some people seem to think, well, if God is sovereign, then why should I pray? You know, if God is in control, why should I pray? The question is, if, if God is not in control, why should you pray? Wouldn't do you any good. We, we like to ask, if God is in control, why should I share the gospel? Friends, the question is, because God is in control, we share the gospel so that we can see people see the beauty of, of Jesus' gospel and, and respond in faith and repentance and turn away from their life of sin and turn to Christ. Number two, we see their knowledge of the truth. Look what Paul goes on to say here in Titus 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Christ Jesus, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. This is the second piece of the mission statement that Paul has for this church. He says that they are to grow in the knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. This, what he seems to be saying is that churches have been established so that those who are Christians can grow in their, in their knowledge. The church on Crete is to grow in their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. And folks, this is why we've been placed here. 
This is one of the purposes that we have been placed here is so that we can together be more like Jesus than we ever could apart. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 says this. We just talked about this this morning in our new members class. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, comma, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In other words, there's something about being together as the people of God that God uses to make us more like Jesus. And for that reason, that's why he has commanded us to be together, to come together as a church. What we learn is that believers are to be marked by growth. Generally, I don't know if you've recognized this, growth is the evidence that something is alive. When I was a kid my family's property joined a pasture uh, that, uh, that went down a creek uh, toward the river, but it went down the creek for a, a good ways behind a few folks' houses. And um, it was actually kind of strange. This, this man uh, owned cows, and, and he had a, a Ph.D. in fluid motion. He had worked for the government, and he had been out in the middle of the ocean when they were firing rockets out of submarines and crazy things, and he just kind of retired to our little town and kept cows. And, um, and so sometimes um, his cows would, um, because of the, the, the ground was kind of hilly there, it was hard to keep a fence all the way down to the bottom of all the, you know, the, the nooks and crannies, the cows would very frequently get out. And so when I was about 10 years old, he decided that in that part of his pasture, he was no longer going to keep cows. He just stopped caring about it. And he kept the cows over closer to the barn. And as a result, when there's no cows in the, in the pasture, everything starts to grow up, you know. And it, it's a big mess. Now, me and my friends like this because now we could go play in the pasture and build our forts and our hideouts in the pasture down by the creek. But the problem was the weeds got so tall, you know, right up to here. I mean, you couldn't walk 10 feet through there without being covered in ticks and stuff like that. But I don't know if you've ever noticed this. If you let a pasture that has grown up just sit for a while, a couple of years pass, and then these little saplings start to grow. And then they get bigger, and they sprout branches, and, and those branches have leaves, and then the leaves kind of crowd out the light to getting down to the bottom, and then all of a sudden, those tall weeds are no longer there, and it's like a little young forest. Over time, things began to grow up, but then it began to mature, right? That The weeds went away, and the trees began to grow, and then now, today... Some 15 or 20 years later, it's kind of woods, what used to be a pasture. Things that are alive grow and develop and change and mature. And the mark of a believer, likewise, is growth and development and change and maturity. And the New Testament says that the way that this occurs is in the church. Hebrews 10 24 and 25. In other words, the church is not just a, a helpful tool toward our growth. The, the local church, friends, the local church is God's plan for our growth. Being together 
has a way of making us more like Jesus as we encourage one another and confess sins to one another and hold one another accountable. We've been put here for a purpose, and that purpose is to grow in godliness. The second thing we see here is that there is a kind of knowledge that doesn't lead to godliness. Look what it says. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. What we can read there between the lines is that there is a kind of knowledge that does not accord with godliness. In other words, there's a kind of knowing that doesn't make you more godly, and that's not what we're seeking to to aim for. It's possible to know so much that never touches down. It's possible to know a lot that never changes you. It's possible to attend Bible study after Bible study after Bible study and never be sanctified. Never be more like Jesus than we were five years ago. And friends, can I share a danger with you? It is incredibly dangerous to attend church for decades and never be changed. It is incredibly dangerous to attend church for years and years and years and never be changed because here's why. What those years and those decades do is they entrench us in the belief that we are okay because we've been around forever. But just being near Jesus doesn't make us more like him. It would be like sending an old car. I, I remember my dad, when I, was, uh, when, when I was, I don't know, 14 or 15, uh, we were driving to, to Jonesville, one of the next towns up, and there was this place off to the right, and they restored cars. But there was this old truck. It was a 63 Ford Stepside with a, uh, a short block V8, 292, three on the tree. And, um, and I, it's very vivid, um, and I said, Dad, I wonder what they're doing with that old truck, you know. So we pulled in, and, uh, and we talked to the, to the guy there, and he wasn't the guy that owned the place, but he was working there. He said, yeah, that's my truck. It's been sitting out there for a while. You've probably seen it. Uh, I, I don't guess I'm going to do anything with it. 800 bucks. And we said, sold. Take it. And the first thing we had to do was take this truck to the body shop. Now, I don't know if you've ever done this before, but trucks can sit at a body shop for a long time and just sit there and sit there until the guy gets caught up. It would be like taking your old car to the body shop just to have it sit outside for 25 years. You convince yourself that yeah, I'm at the right place. But truck's at the body shop, but it's only rusting. It's not being renewed. It's not being restored. That's the danger of being at church forever and never being changed. It would be like allowing an infection in your body to grow and develop while you sit in the parking lot of the hospital. I'm at the right place. I'm not being healed. It's possible to be filled with a kind of knowledge that doesn't lead to godliness, that doesn't accord with godliness. But we see in the scriptures consistently over and over and over that right belief feeds right living. Right belief feeds right living. And that's why as long as I'm here, I will continue to value and prioritize, try to put before you healthy doctrine. Theology is not a bad word. It's simply the contemplation of who God is so that we can be more like him. The last thing that I want to show is this, that all of this was written, this purpose statement of Paul to Titus was written in the hope of eternal 
life. It's a forward-looking book. He's saying we are not there yet. And that's why I've left you there on that island island of Crete so that you might set in order what remains because the people of God, we're growing, but we're not perfect. Look what he says here. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time he manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of our God and Savior. He says in verse 2, in the hope of eternal life. This is a forward-looking verse. In other words, hope is hope deals with something that is coming but is not here yet. See, our salvation, friends, if, if you were converted to Christ when you were eight years old, yes, you have been saved. Past perfect tense. And if you are in Christ, he is every day seeking to make you more like him. He's seeking to today save you from your sins. Yes, when you were 8 or 18 or 92, he saved you in the past. But he's seeking to progressively save you from your sins day by day now. And what he's saying to the the church on Crete, what he's saying to Titus, is that there's still a salvation that's coming for those who are in Christ. The hope of of eternal life. In other words, right now you have not made it. Right now you are not perfect. Right now you are not home. Right now you may have to suffer. Right now you may have to deal with a body that's breaking down. Right now you may have to deal with broken relationships or or disobedient children or difficult workplace situations. But, But there is a hope that is coming. And that hope of what lies ahead for the believer makes everything here and now worth it. That hope that is coming causes us to want to go out and share the gospel with others because we want them to be a part of that hope that's coming too. That hope that is coming is the, is the rock that we bind ourselves to and it, and it feeds all of, our, all of our budgets and all of our yearly plans because we know that one day the curtain is going to close. And our opportunity will be gone. And so we maintain a forward-looking faith, saying, God, I know I have been saved. God, I'm being saved every day for my sins. But Lord, I'm going to press on I'm going to encourage the believers at my church. I'm going to share the gospel with my family members and neighbors because one day it will all be worth it. And friends, I don't know about you, but I think that's a pretty good purpose statement for a church. Why don't we follow that? Why don't we get after that? Let's pray.